Argument now in number 95-1621, Harbor Tug and Barge Company versus John Papai. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case presents two distinct legal issues. The first is whether an injured maritime worker who has received LHWCA, Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act benefits, pursuant to an award by an administrative law judge, can thereafter seek Siemens remedies, or whether that person is precluded. The second issue is whether an injured maritime worker's status as a seaman or not is dependent upon his job assignment at the time when he is injured, or can be dependent upon his prior work history for other employers or for the same employer. Mr. Danoff, as a preliminary question, if the Court were to address the second question and conclude that we do not look at the prior relationship with other tug owner employers, but confine the fleet principle to the same owner of the vessels being worked on, if we were to do that, do we have to reach the first question, or would that become advisory? I mean, what would happen if we were to decide the second issue in your favor? The case could be decided on either one of the two questions in our favor, and that could end the case. And should it end the case? I mean, do we have any business offering alternative holdings or not? I think in this case, yes. And the reason is that there is a significant and clear split in the circuits on both issues. There's a split on both, but answering both might make something advisory, it seems to me. I think it would not be, if the decision were made on both issues, as I think it should be, it would eliminate the problems we have raised in the brief with duplicative litigation in the case of each issue, and it would resolve the split in the circuits in each issue. The case could be decided on narrow grounds, but I don't think it has to be decided on narrow grounds. Which of the two is the more important issue to those who are in the field? Well, it's actually somewhat different fields. I think people who are in purely deep water or seamen issues, the second issue would be more important. To those who are involved in administration of the LHWCA and paying benefits under the LHWCA, the first issue is more important. I think they're equally important to different segments of the industry and, to some extent, to a group that it overlaps for. So I do think it is important to resolve both issues. The preclusion issue, the first issue involving the benefits under the Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act, I want to underscore the difference between this case and the Gazzoni case, which was argued strenuously by the other side. In the Gazzoni case, the worker who had been injured had not received any sort of compensation order, whether by an administrative law judge or by a Section 8i settlement or by the district director. He was simply receiving benefits, essentially voluntarily, at the same time seeking seaman status. The difference between that case and this one is that in this case there is a compensation order, and that triggers Section 905A of the Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act, which talks about the employer's liability is exclusive under the Act. And the issue is what makes the employer liable. In the case of the LHWCA, it's a compensation order, whether it's by settlement by the administrative law judges in this case. In this case, there is... Explain to me, I know you have a literal interpretation of 905A, but standing back from that, you mentioned the Gazzoni case. That says the employer pays voluntarily under the Longshore Act, would be amenable to a later Jones Act case. On the other hand, if the employer says, not a penny until you drag me before some forum, they go into the workers' compensation, the Longshore mode, because it's the fastest. And in that case, you would say 
the, the, there can't, can't be any Jones Act, but in the other case where the employer was much more solicitous of the employee there could be, what sense would that make? Well, the, the employer would not always get protection if it voluntarily paid. That's true. Uh, on the other hand, uh, from the employer's point of view, they have, if they feel that the Jones Act suit is inappropriate, that status needs to be determined, they would have to object because the worker is seeking seaman status in the Department of Labor forum and at that point get an adjudication of status. Sooner or later, there has to be an adjudication of status. It may be some employer... Yes, but, uh, you know, the big problem, as I see it here, is that provision in Title 33, Section 903E. Now, I guess that's in the Longshoreman Harbor Workers Act. Yes, it is. And it says, notwithstanding any other provision of law, any amounts paid to an employee for the same injury, disability, or death for which benefits are claimed under this chapter, LACWA, the Longshoreman Workers case, pursuant to the Jones Act, Seaman Act case, shall be credited against any liability imposed by this chapter. Now, uh, this court expressed some reliance on that section in Gizoni. And presumably it's a section to which we have to give some effect. And I don't know how it would apply under your proposed rule. What would be the purpose of this section? The section to which you refer talk yes. about not the case we have here where there's an LHWCA finding of status and then a Jones Act case, but the reverse. And the... Well, I don't know if it's the reverse. It says any amounts paid to an employee for the same injury. Pursuant to the Jones Act or state workers' compensation. Uh-huh. As opposed to... So you would confine that section only to the voluntary payment of benefits? To the voluntary payment of a Jones Act settlement or to payments of state workers' compensation. I think it would be very a very strained reading to take 903E, which not, doesn't say anything about exclusive liability of the employer who has been adjudicated to have to pay under the LHWCA, and say 903E retracted that immunity without any statement in 903E that it is intending to retract that immunity and without any legislative but history what, saying that. What about the court's reliance on the section in Gizoni? Well, in Gizoni, again, there was no adjudication yet of the individual status, and therefore, Section 905A never came into play. Well, you think that whatever remedy is first obtained by a final court judgment uh, is the one that uh, governs? Is, yes. Is it a race to the courthouse for a judgment kind well, of thing? That, it's really in the control of the injured worker because yes. he has the right to decide which forum. How can you say that the injured worker, presumably, uh, went to uh, a Longshoreman Harbor Workers administrative judge and asserted that he was, in fact, a Longshoreman Harbor Workers worker and wanted benefits, got that order, and it was not appealed. It has become final. But in the interim, the injured worker also went to court under the Jones Act and said, contrary to the claim in the Longshoreman administrative proceeding, that he was, in fact, a seaman and entitled to recover. Is that the situation we have here? Almost. He actually had the district court judge try the status first, and then went and had It was status. on appeal, though. Well, it wasn't on appeal. The case had not been concluded because he still had a 905B action. It was an interlocutory decision. The trial of the 905B action had not taken place mm -hmm. and was about to take place when the ALJ made his decision. But when you say it's the worker's choice, this worker chose the Jones Act route, and it was only when the district judge said, uh, I'm sorry, you don't been under the Jones Act, that he then went to the uh, workers' compensation 
tribunal. That's really not entirely accurate either. He well, what, which, he, which claim he had did he file first? I'm sorry? Did he file first in the district court or first before uh, the, the Longshore? Under the Longshore Act, the claimant doesn't actually have to file something. It's the employer's obligation to file when an injury is reported, and in this case... Yes, but when did he pursue, when did he pursue benefits? In what order? Didn't he first pursue the Jones Act? He, he was, the employer was voluntary, voluntarily paying, and he was receiving Longshore benefits, and then pursued the Jones Act litigation for a status finding first. And did he, did he did not invoke the Longshore and Harbor Workers Act until the district court had ruled against him well, it's Jones Act case. I don't mean to quote with the word invoked. The employer has the obligation to make payments without... We, you said that it's the employee's choice which route he wants to go. So, is it not the case that this employee chose the Jones Act first? He chose to have his status decided first by the district court in the Jones Act case. And, actually, and then he was stuck because it wasn't a final judgment. He couldn't appeal. And then he asked for the adjudication under the Longshore Workers. Isn't that just yes, the I'm, history of the case? Yes. And it's not, that's not debatable that his first choice was the district court. Yes. He wanted to have his seaman status determined in the district court. Well, that could have and remained he, his he first choice, couldn't it? I mean... I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Why could that not have remained his first choice? Is there some, was he under some compulsion to come back under the Harbor Workers Act and ask for adjudication there? No, he was not. He, he could have waited. could have pursued the appeal. He could have pursued the appeal. Without pressing the Harbor Workers claim. So he, 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 it was within his power to maintain his first choice. He yes. couldn't appeal. He had tried to get a 1292B and he was turned down by the Court of Appeals, right? That's right. On so he was stuck for a long time. He could have ultimately appealed, though. If, if, if the decision were adverse to him in the district court. Yes, as soon as the 905B trial was over, he could have appealed not only the findings of that trial, but his status findings. But in the meantime, he has to live. Uh, that's true. But that puts him in the same position as any other seaman who claims he's a seaman. Yeah, but could he have found himself in the position uh, pending an appeal in the Jones Act case in which the employer ceased the voluntary payments? That Did is, he hedge against that? Was it reasonable to hedge against that by bringing the harbor workers' claim? Well, if the employer had ceased payments, then he could have said, no, I am entitled to the payments and, and, and sought an adjudication. But he, he wouldn't have gotten anything until the administrative adjudication was, was final. In other words, the, I, I assume there's no provision in there that the mere filing of a claim under the Harbor's work, Harbor Workers Act uh, obligates the employer to start making payments pending an ultimate adjudication of liability. If, if the employer controverts the duty to pay, he is not obligated yeah. to pay pending the, pending the adjudication. There are penalties if he is wrong, but yes, there could be a period where the worker is not receiving longshore benefits. But if, in fact, he is a seaman, that just puts him in the same position as all other seamen and all other tort victims. If it had gone the other way before the ALJ, suppose the ALJ said, I find this person is a sailor. Would that be issue preclusive in the district court litigation? I believe it would be. I think it's not, you know, in question necessarily in this case, but I think as a matter of logic, it would be. That Even any, though any, no, in, in this very scenario, where they went to the district court first, the district court said, you're not a sailor, then goes to the longshore uh, route and gets a determination that you are a sailor and doesn't contest that, comes back to the district court and says, see, now I've got a final adjudication that I'm not entitled to longshore benefits because I'm a sailor. And you say the district court then, despite the district court's earlier ruling, would, that it would be issue preclusive. Because it was an interlocutory ruling, and the first final ruling on status is the one that should govern. Do, do the administrative law judges routinely say you are a sailor, or do they just say that you are or you are not a longshore worker? Uh, technically, it's the latter, but if the only issue is are you a seaman or are you a longshore worker, uh, ALJs will from time to time say we find he is not well, a longshore worker, he's a seaman. It's well, there could be some instances, or could they correct me if I'm wrong, where you're neither? Where you're neither? Yes, definitely. All right. What are the, those? What the, so what the administrative... What are those? 
I wasn't aware that there were. Well, you could be short. You could be too inland to be either. To well, be like me, I'm neither one, right? I could bring a lawsuit and be found to be neither one. That's right. It has to be possible. Somebody has to be a maritime worker, uh, and there's a, a long and involved situs and status. So you mean somebody who might be under state workers' right. compensation? Exactly. Those are the three categories. But the, the big problem comes up with these people who may be sailors and maybe longshore workers. How big is is the problem? I didn't have a sense of it. There there are hundreds and hundreds of cases every year that in which seaman status is uh, is debated. This isn't even outside the record. It was quoted in our petition for certiorari. There are there are many many cases where the status issue is a very difficult issue and where it's litigated and if this case is allowed to stand, will be litigated twice. But Mr. Danoff, I understood you to say a moment ago that the the only exact issue in the administrative proceeding is whether one is a longshore worker or not. And you say, you know, as a practical matter, if, if, there, if everybody agrees there are only two choices, the adjudication is frequently made in the form of saying you're a sailor. But the only issue that technically arises under the Act is longshore worker or not longshore worker. Correct. Okay. If that is the only thing that the court is technically empowered to decide, if that is the only issue under that statute, then why is there a preclusive effect if the court goes the further step and says, not only you're not a longshore worker, but by the way, you are a sailor? Why should, why should that frolic uh, be preclusive? Well, I guess this court has addressed that very question, has it not, in a sense, and has said the acts are uh, intended to be one or the other, not both. Right. Yeah, but there could be. Yeah, but there, that means there can't be both. But it's also consistent be with being neither. Exactly, and and the usual rules of preclusion, I think, operate only with respect to what is necessary for the judgment in the first action, and a determination that he is a seaman, uh, as as you have explained it to us, is not necessary for the judgment in the first action, and therefore, under the normal preclusion rules, I suppose it would not raise an estoppel. And that will be a question I'm sure someday the court will have to address, and namely when the court has said repeatedly that the two acts are mutually exclusive, if, if somebody gets an award under the uh, Jones Act, for instance, first, is that mutually exclusive of the Longshore Act? In the case of this case, where the first action is under the Longshore Act, the statute itself says the employer's liability is exclusive in law or at admiralty. I don't know what that could mean other than there's no Jones Act remedy allowed to follow. Well, that, the, the, Justice Souter is not contradicting that. He's, he's just saying that you're never going to have the assurance of only one, one determination, either, either under uh, the Longshoremen Act or in the district court. Because, to be sure, if you are found in the first action to be either a seaman or a longshore worker, the other one is precluded and the case is over. But if in the first action you are found not to be a, a harbor worker or not to be a seaman, you're still going to have a second action. That may be. It doesn't affect your case. Once no. you're found to be a harbor worker. Right. I, I so what, what you have here is an adjudication that this person was, in fact, a longshoreman, as I understand it. Right. Yeah. The, if, if you prevail and we adopt the rule of, of issue preclusion where there is a finding in the agency uh, as to longshore status, uh, would the district court in a Jones Act suit um, be correct in acting within its discretion to defer proceedings until the administrative hearings were concluded? That, that is a possibility if there are two pending proceedings that one or the other tribunal would stay its action pending the resolution of The district court would say that there, there is a possibility that uh, this issue will be resolved uh, conclusively uh, in favor of longshore status, so I'll just wait. In some states, including California, where some of these cases are filed in state court, the Jones Act cases, have rules of their own which say which action gets precedence first. The first filed action often gets precedence. Some states don't have that rule, and then the district court would have to make a discretionary decision 
whether to await the ALJ's finding or to make its own finding, and if the case is over, then the ALJ would be bound by it. I believe you said that there were provisional remedies for the employee who was in this situation. This is the employee's dilemma. I want the Jones Act because I think I can prove negligence and I want the pain and suffering. But I certainly want something and my employer is not being cooperative. What does, an, what does someone do who's in that dilemma, who thinks he's got a good Jones Act claim but needs the interim maintenance? At that, both tribunals, both the courts and the ALJ, in the case of hardship, have the procedural tools to make an early status decision. The claimant should go to whichever tribunal he wants to decide the issue and say, this is a hardship case, I need a quick decision. That issue can be severed. It's, it's simply the status question, not the liability of the merits. It's often a one-day proceeding and get an early status decision. The problem is that that's essentially what happened here, but then there was no immediate appeal because he also had the, the claim against the employer as ship owner. But when it was, dis of course, he was receiving, in this case, the compensation benefits throughout, and when the district judge... Only for the knee, not for the further injury, right? Right, but that actually the amount he would have obtained is the same. The back, the second injury, the back injury, had more to do with his final total permanent disability than his interim benefits. His interim benefits would be the same. So he, he did receive uh, benefits throughout. And, and, it, and I guess there's even a third cause of action, is there, for the employee against the owner of the vessel, and that's not affected by any of this discussion. It's, uh, it's part of the package that the injured worker has under the Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act. He but not you only agree that can go forward? Oh, yes, and it, it can go forward. And it is it going forward? It went forward to the district court to a trial, yes. and there was a trial of that issue. He had a negligence right. action, right. which he pursued to conclusion. The, I, I ask you, I don't want to, I want to ask a question about the other issue, but are you finished? Is, that a, is this a good time? I'd be happy to answer your question about the uh, other issue. Uh, if uh, the uh, uh, Joe Smith is a carpenter on a boat tied up at the dock and hurts himself, but this is his... Uh, He's had 10 trips on the same boat ship uh, as a sailor. He's a sailor, right? If he has... He just happened to be uh, hammering some nails and so forth. He's worked for, however, the same employer, 10 trips. This is the 11th one, and I take it we'd call him a sailor under our cases, even he, though the only thing that changed is he happens to have been hurt when he was painting or... Yes, if okay. he had a long-term assignment yeah. that was a seaman's job, the yeah. fact that he is doing something while the ship's tied to the dock. And now, now in removed. fact, the situation is the same, except the earlier trips were on different ships owned by the same person. No, it, it really, same result. It really is uh, different because if each job assignment is, is a different job assignment, he could be assigned one time to a ship for a voyage. And what, I, what I'm really trying to get at, I'll be more frank about it, is if in fact we have a person who is a sailor because he has worked 10 times for different ships of the same company in sailing capacity, why does it make any difference if those 10 previous trips were for different companies but hired out of the same union hiring hall? It's because the status of an individual has, first of all, of that individual has never been by precedent uh, judged by other than his current assignment, whether it's with one or more vessels with a single employer. And the reason for that is it would make every worker who was a seaman in the past potentially a seaman now. Well, I the guess we, we addressed uh, the, the closest case might be Chandra's. Indeed. Where this court acknowledged with respect to an employer a fleet doctrine could be applicable. But that was in a situation where the employee's job had not changed. In fact, dealing with an employee who had been hired as a seaman uh, to go on voyages as the chief engineer or the communications expert or something and to work in that capacity. 
did the court acknowledge that an assignment could change? Indeed. And that if the assignment indeed changed and the worker was then going to just be asked to come on board to paint when the vessel was tied to the dock to do uh, repairs on a daily basis, that would be a change of assignment, even if it were the same employer. Much less a different one. The Chandra's case had, I think, a beautiful example illustrating this, which is a seaman who is transferred to the office. What what I'm driving at, yes, is is that if, in fact, there's so many variables, but hold them all constant, and if he's a seaman because of the fleet doctrine, should it suddenly make a difference if everything else is the same, but it isn't this employer's fleet, it's the union hiring hall. That's what I'm trying to get at. Does, does the simple fact, if everything else would make him a seaman, but for the fact that he's hired out of a union hiring hall and works on the ships of different employers in the past, that's the only difference. It's, Why does that make a legal difference? Why should it make a legal difference? It, it's not his being hired out of the union hiring hall that makes a difference. That makes no difference. It's the work for other employers because clearly his job will have changed. His job assignment will have changed when he changes employers and works on different vessels. And why do we speak in job. terms of status rather than in terms of a continuing employment relationship as a seaman with the given fleet employer? Why, why does it help to talk about status on your view? Because status apparently is something that has no reference, can have no reference, except with respect to the relationship between the employer and a given employee and a given employer. Because you need the status of seamen to have the seamen remedy. Well, that's right. That's what we've said. But why does it make sense to talk in terms of status? Why did it make sense for Congress? Why does it make sense for us if all we're really concerned with is the duration uh, or repetition of a relationship between the, 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 the worker and a particular employer? I'm, I'm not sure I'm following the question. Well, hasn't this court said it de- it's determined on the basis of the status of the employee? Haven't we made that the rule under the statutes, or haven't we interpreted the statutes as making that the rule? Yes, the, the seamen's remedies are only allowed to people with seamen status. And is someone who is hired temporarily to go paint a tug while it's at the dock ever going to be a seaman by virtue of that? Employee, no matter how many days he goes and paints. Not, no, no, he would not be in, in our. But if, we, but if he is in fact acting, there, if there is a question as to whether he is in a given case acting as a seaman, and it is appropriate to look to his prior kinds of jobs, why do we look to his prior kinds of jobs only if they are for a given employer rather than his prior kinds of jobs for like employers? If our concern is with status rather than the details of the employment relationship between a given employer and a given employee. It's because the, the relationship that has always been considered determinative of status is with the given employee because it has always been considered that the current job assignment governs. In but why should that make a difference if status is the issue? Because it would... The seamen remedies cover seamen in being, not former seamen, who are now not seamen. Seamen remedies are limited to people who are subject to the perils of the sea, who have... Then why do we look, then, uh, if, uh, if you carry your logic to, to its extreme, why do we ever look to a prior job assignment at all? I don't think we should unless it's part of a continuing well, I thought employment. We, I thought we did for purposes of determining the substantiality. Uh, of of the uh, the the the, the uh, satisfaction of the two criteria for seaman status. Well, I suppose we did, did we? Uh, when the person is hired generally to be uh, like the engineer on whatever vessel is at sea by the employer, but then one time while the vessel was parked in the harbor, the employer said, "By the way, go paint the deck." And we look to the overall job with the employer, I assume, to yes, determine whether he was a seaman, not just whether at that moment. If there's a long-term employment, then you can look at the entirety of that long-term employment. Is there employment. any long-term employment in this setup? The, the, the Solicitor General said that these, this operation has no permanent crews, so it's not like a vessel that goes off with a 
uh, crew and then uh, that has a long-term relationship. Uh, tell me what, what is the fact? Is it true that this tug has no permanent crew and that even when it's at sea, these are pickup workers from the hiring hall? They do pick up workers from the hiring hall to do a voyage basis for a specific time-limited basis. It could be one day, it could be a week on that particular tug. So all their employees are picked from this hiring hall for a per-job, on a per-job basis? Yes, although the job may be more than one day, yes. Thank you, Mr. Danoff. Mr. Boyle, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, um, as was stated previously, this Court has already held that voluntary payment of longshore benefits does not preclude the Jones Act uh, award. <clears throat> neither, should it, neither should the formal award that was made in this case pre preclude this Jones Act suit. Before I get into that, though, one thing I have to make clear is that this scenario never occurs except in one very, very specific instance, and that's when the employer owns the ship. The employer must own the ship to have this problem. And when the motion for summary judgment was made, as against the Jones Act uh, complaint here, defendant also, petitioner also made a motion for summary judgment that this plaintiff did not have a 905B action for negligence. And when the judge decided that there was no Jones Act case, the judge also decided that there was a 905B case, thereby deciding that this man was a longshoreman. So the judge, the district judge, decided that this man was in the, the Longshore Act before he ever went over to the ALJ. That, that's simply a denial of summary judgment. That's not a, a determination of fact by the district court. Well, Your Honor, the j district judge determined that because of the circumstance of this man's employment, he could proceed with a 905B action. Well, what, what, what order did the district court enter? A denial of a motion for summary judgment? A partial, a partial denial of a motion for on summary the, judgment. On the 905B. Right. That simply means there's enough evidence to go to trial. It doesn't mean that the district court is making a factual finding one way or the other. In fact, district courts don't make factual findings no, but on summary judgment. No, but, Your Honor, in order to even maintain a 905B action, one has to be a longshoreman one may not be a seaman because the Longshore Act provides a lien as against the 905B action. And that was already determined in the district court. It was not determined by the ALJ. The ALJ mistakenly redetermined it. The district judge had already determined it. Excuse me, does, would the district judge have to find that he is surely a seaman and probably has a, uh, a valid cause of action under 905B, or does he only have to determine that he is at least arguably a seaman and arguably has a cause of action. You mean arguably a longshoreman? Oh, arguably a longshoreman and arguably has a Well, I think the court, the case is dismissible. Defendant petitioner argued that the man had no 905B action, along with no, no, no Jones Act cause of action. And the judge decided that in view of the circumstances that he was a longshoreman within the Longshore Act, he arguably had a 905. Didn't say he had a 905. Well, he arguably did, which no. means he's arguably uh, a longshore. Your Honor, there is no determination by the finder of fact in a 905B action as to whether or not the worker is a longshoreman. It is given that he is a longshoreman. No finder of fact decides longshore status in a 905B case. Is that right? Yes, Your Honor. What do you mean it's given? Well, who, who, who gives, gives it? it? Well, it's just like. It's, it's in the nature of, in a diversity action, you allege that you're a citizen of state A, and you allege defendant is a citizen of state B. And that can't be controverted? Yes, it can. And the defendant did controvert it in this case. They said, well, I'm not following your argument what? because we didn't, never got to the 905B case until the district judge first threw out the Jones Act case. The district judge did say, you're not a sailor. Yes, Your Honor. And then said, because you're not a sailor, and that's although it was interlocutory, that was out of the case. And then they went over to the 905B case. And as part of the 905B case, went to the ALJ at the Department of Labor to get the lien established. 
That's why he went to the Department of Labor, not to get benefits, but to get the lien established. It was part of the 905B process. It was a ticket to be punched in the 905B action. Then how did we get the adjudication of benefits by the ALJ? Because the ALJ didn't recognize that he was already precluded from making another determination about status by virtue of the district judge's decision and undertook to make a new determination and then made a new determination, which he should not have made. Are you getting, are you getting into this as an alternative basis for affirmance of the Ninth Circuit? The, the Ninth Circuit uh, said the question for was whether the plaintiff's receipt of compensation benefits under the LHWCA precludes him from also recovering as a seaman or the joint. They took it as a given that that had happened, and they, they don't go into this thing you're talking about at all. We ordinarily take the Ninth Circuit's findings as, as we re, uh, receive them. Yes, Chief Justice. The only reason why I got into this is because there was a lot of colloquy during Mr. Danoff's argument about people being seamen, being longshoremen, and being neither. And that's the only reason why I brought this up. That's all. Can I ask you about the, the main collateral estoppel issue, something that's bothering me that I don't see answered. Maybe there's an obvious answer to it. But in your uh, opinion, uh, if the uh, injured uh, uh, employee goes to the uh, longshoreman people first and they say you're a longshoreman, then the person should be able to sue under the Jones Act and say, no, I'm a seaman and that doesn't bind me, right? Yes. Okay. What happens, in your opinion, if the first, uh, if, the, if what happens is that he wants to, if, is the employer bound similarly or not bound similarly? In other words, what happens if they say in the first proceeding, you're not a longshoreman, you're a seaman. And then the, the injured person goes into court and the employer, who just won, says, oh, no, you're not a seaman, you're a longshoreman. And, and then the man ends up with nothing. Well, because the court says he's a longshoreman and the ALJ said he's a seaman, and there he is, not a penny. So, so how, how, how is this supposed to work? Or is it possible that the, 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 employer, the employer would be bound, but the employee wouldn't? That doesn't seem very fair. How, how, how does this whole thing work out? Well, the way it works out is that if the employer went in front of the ALJ, and vigorously argued that the worker was a seaman. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what the ALJ decided, the arguments, the conduct, the, the advanced by that litigant in front of the ALJ, principles of equitable estoppel would prevent the employer from going in front of the district judge and taking an opposite position. Well, then why wouldn't it equally bind the, 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 the employee? Well, because in this case, and in all of these cases, you never have an employee go in and vigorously argue that they're a longshoreman. Will we measure the vigor of the argument in determining collateral estoppel? Well, to the extent that one of the, one of the, re, one of the uh, guidelines of the Astoria Savings case versus Solomino is the incentive to vigorously or aggressively pursue a position. Now, there are f five things about this. ALJ determination and ALJ awards of longshore benefits that indicate that they are not entitled to administrative collateral estoppel. And the first of those was mentioned in Mr. Danoff's argument is in the statute itself, the longshore statute, 903E, that talks about credit for Jones Act payments in making longshore awards. If it goes in that direction one way, it should go the other direction also. The second one is 913C. Excuse me, I, I don't understand that if it should. Um. Well, in this court's opinion in Gazzoni, at 502 U.S., page 91, the court stated that one of the reasons why receipt of longshore benefits should not preclude pursuit of Jones Act benefits was that Section 903E of the Longshore Act says that any payments by reason, payments made under the Jones Act would be a credit to any liability imposed upon the employer under the Longshore Act. And in a footnote in that opinion, it was mentioned that because of that, there is no detrimental reliance upon any position that the employee takes because the employer gets credit for having paid monies out 
under the Jones Act. That being the situation, then the opposite of that should also be true. And it is true that the employer gets credit for any monies paid under the Longshore Act in the pursuit of a Jones Act remedy. It's one of the parts of the statute that indicates the coexistence of the Longshore Act and the Jones Act. But one, there are four others. The second one is... Of course, that, that, that could just... Your, what, what your, what your uh, opponent says here is that that could just handle the situation in which there has been a Jones Act determination uh, without collateral estoppel effect. Or the situation in which uh, um, uh, Jones Act uh, damages are, 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 are partly different, uh, but, not in, uh, but not entirely different from uh, harbor worker damages. It could... But what we're trying to determine here is whether Congress, when it enacted the various iterations of the Longshore Act, meant for an ALJ, an ALJ award to be preclusive or not. This is just one of five circumstances in the Act that indicates they didn't mean it to be Your preclusive. view is it's preclusive if the employer wins, but it's not preclusive if the employee wins? No, it's not preclusive in either one. So, so then how are we going to deal with this worker if it's not preclusive in either case? You either have to, on the one hand, give uh, a, 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 a system of law where the worst that would happen to the worker is that sometimes he would uh, not get quite as much money. Or we take your system... And sometimes workers will get both with credit, but sometimes they'll get nothing. And I have to admit that that last possibility, which seems a real one under your system, is something I find it difficult to square with what I think Congress had in mind. Well, Longshore benefits are paid voluntarily by employers. Jones Act benefits are not paid voluntarily by employers. You have to file a suit against, under the Jones Act. You have to take the position you're a Jones Act seaman. If you take the position you're a Jones Act seaman, you're entitled to a trial by jury if you present a prima facie case that you're a Jones Act seaman. I believe that that's what this plaintiff did here, and the judge got into factual circumstances beyond the prima facie case and granted summary judgment. But isn't it also true, just to throw this in, there, there are situations in which the plaintiff will recover under neither scheme, because he, if he is in fact a seaman, he can't recover as a longshoreman, and he may not be able to prove negligence, in, in which event he won't recover the Jones Act either. That's right. And that's the, cho that's the choice the litigant takes. Well, if he's neither, maybe he's entitled to state workers' comp. Definitely not, because he's injured on board a vessel, and the situs of his injury would not entitle him to, to stay calm under any circumstances. Um, I want to get to... Uh, just one point. Uh, if, if he's a seaman, but there's no negligence, uh, he still gets something because the vessel is unseaworthy? Nothing. Or maintenance and cure? Maintenance and cure has nothing to do with unseaworthy. It has to do... But he does get that yes. as, a, as a seaman. Yes. As long as he's temporarily disabled, as soon as he becomes uh, permanently disabled... He gets nothing. That's what, about a, what about a claim the vessel's unseaworthy? It has nothing to do with 20, No, it isn't. It's $22 a day in this. What, why, and why has, has nothing to do with it? Because? Because that it has a, that's a tort remedy. That's part of the seaman's tort, unseaworthiness and negligence. You have to prove a case of unseaworthiness. In, in, in other words, that's com comprised within the Jones Act uh, claim of no negligence? Yes. The unseaworthiness is absolute liability, like products liability. That's why I'm asking. Why doesn't Justice Stevens put you the case? Isn't it possible that you can be a seaman, but there's no negligence? So then I say, don't you still have a cause of action for unseaworthiness? Oh, yes, oh, you, you do. That has nothing to do with it. Oh, no, yes, you have a cause of action for unseaworthiness. Okay. That's also proving a case. All right. Just under a lesser standard. That doesn't mean that he gets nothing, then, because he has a cause of action for unseaworthiness. Unless he can't, if he can't prove negligence, uh, the chances are that he... It's somewhat unlikely, well, usually it goes the other way around. It's easier to prove unseaworthiness than it is to prove negligence. But under negligence, you get causation no matter how slight, so that if you prove negligence, the causal connection between the accident and the injury has to be a lot, can be a lot thinner than it is under negligence. Well, if he can't prove either unseaworthiness or negligence, perhaps he doesn't deserve to get anything. I think that's correct. That's true. But that's nothing to do with the longshore. Workers' compensation is the no-fault 
And unseaworthiness is still a form of liability. You have to prove this ship was in unseaworthy state. It's not, I, I, I injured my knee, so I collect. Absolutely. So, but the usual trade-off, isn't this so, is the employer pays workers' compensation and then is not at risk in a tort suit. That's and correct. And yet you're saying that's not what works here. The employer was subject to a compensation award. And then, but you say it, the, the, what flows from that doesn't follow here. That is, the employer, despite having paid compensation, is still at risk in a negligence action. Well, that's true of Nizoni. Anyway, that's already been established, that the employer paying compensation does not cut off the Jones Act case. What we're talking about here is the employer, uh, uh, the employee obtaining a formal award and whether that formal award is entitled to administrative collateral or estoppel. You said there are five reasons why yes. it's not, and you've told us one of them. I'm curious to hear the <laughs> four. The second one is that under 913D of the Longshore Act, the statute of limitations for filing a claim under the Jones Act is told while the employee pursues the Jones Act. And until such time as he's found to be not a seaman by the court, then he's relegated to the Longshore Act. But up until that point, he, the statute is, uh, of limitations is uh, told. The third one is under 922 of the Longshore Act. Any formal award is, uh, can be modified within a year after its making, which makes it different from other formal awards and other adjudications by ALJs. Just the third reason why this... Can it, can it be modified with respect to the determination of longshoreman status? I believe so. I don't think it's ever happened, but theoretically it can be, yes. What makes you believe so if it's never happened? Because the language of the statute says any aspect of any order entered by the deputy commissioner can be modified up to one year, and that means any. The fourth reason is in the purpose of the Longshore Act itself. If you do, as was mentioned by Justice Ginsburg during Mr. Danoff's argument, if you make a formal award preclusive, you, and you remove any incentive there is for an employer to make voluntary payments. Because this court has already ruled that making of voluntary payments is not preclusive. If you make a formal award preclusive, that's contrary to the purpose of the Longshore Act, which is to foster prompt payment of compensation and medical benefits to injured workers. But that wouldn't be entirely out of accord with the whole purpose of these uh, these schemes, not just the, the, the Longshore Act, but also uh, state workmen's compensation schemes. They are intended to give the employee assurance and, and, and promptness at the expense of uh, maybe waiving uh, greater damages that he could have done. That's, well, that's how those schemes are set up. That's the deal. This isn't you get it fast, you, you, you get it for sure, and in exchange for that, you're giving up uh, a shot at tort remedies that might get you a lot more bucks. Now, the fact that this should happen in, in the mini context of, uh, of, of this procedural uh, dilemma doesn't, uh, doesn't trouble me very much because that's part of the big deal as well. Well, the problem with that is that back in 1920, there were no workers' compensation laws. And back in 1927 and 1920, when the Jones Act was enacted, it was designed to give itinerant seamen a cause of action to be tried by a jury against their employer. Well, there were certainly lots of workmen's compensation laws in 1920. State workmen's compensation But the Congress decided that seamen would not be covered by state workers' comp. Well, that's, that may be one thing, but I thought you said there weren't any workmen's compensation laws in 1920. That simply is factually inaccurate. Well, there was no federal workers' compensation law in 1920. And what I was getting at is the purpose of the Jones Act, and this is the fifth reason, is to afford seamen a trial by jury, crew members really is what seamen are, a trial by jury of the issue not only of negligence but of their status. And in that trial by jury, after you have a prima facie case established, which I believe we did in this case under Chandis versus Latsis, which was that the worker had contributed to the function and mission of the vessel, and they had a connection with the vessel that was uh, substantial in both duration and in nature, then that goes to the jury. And the jury considers things like pearls of the sea, or the jury considers whether you ate, slept, 
or lived on the vessel. The jury considers whether or not this is a day-by-day assignment. But the prima facie case is made and it's for the jury to consider all the circumstances. An ALJ is not equipped to do that. Now, there are four things about this particular ALJ determination that in itself makes it non-preclusive. And the second one of that is the latches that this defendant, this petitioner, after believing that Sharp governed this case, after believing that it would be preclusive, did not bring it to the attention of the district judge, but waited until we got to the Court of Appeals. That's latches. That prevents preclusion. And the fourth one is, if this court decides to follow Sharp, this is a change in the law from back in 1992. Thank you, Mr. Boyle. Mr. Frederick, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In Gizzoni, this Court recognized the unique interplay between the Longshore Act and the Jones Act. In that case, the Court said that the Longshore Act, quote, clearly does not comprehend such a preclusive effect, close quote, because it specifically provides that any amounts paid to an employee for the same injury under the Jones Act, quote, shall be credited against any liability imposed, Is it your view, this is the one thing that is bothering me, that the same question. I mean, do you remember the question? The hardship question. No. Well, the question basically is, is your rule, is the government's rule, which says that the proceeding, the first proceeding, does not bind the employee also applicable to the employer? Yes or no? In the Longshore Act proceeding, the finding would not be binding. Whether it is in the Jones Act would then be binding on the Longshore Act is a different question. No, but there are possibility of 16 boxes in a matrix, as I've worked out. You could have all kinds of permutations and combinations. I am confining myself for this question to the instance where the Longshoreman proceeding comes first. And here, one side could win or the other. The Jones Act comes second, and I want to be certain it is the position of the government that the first proceeding does not bind the seaman. That's what you've argued in your brief, the employee. Right? That's your brief. And I take it it is also your position that it does not bind the employer. Justice Breyer, the answer to your question is that the government's position is that an ALJ determination in a Longshore award is not binding and does not have preclusive effect on a subsequent Jones Act suit brought by the employee. For either party. Don't say for either party, so now I'm getting worried. The answer to your question is, did Congress intend for administrative estoppel to apply? Our position is that Congress did not. It did not intend it on either party? That's correct. Thank you. Now, the second part of my answer to your question is, would principles of equitable estoppel apply? That's a different issue as to whether or not the employer, who has not suffered detrimental reliance, as this Court said in footnote 5. Here I don't know because I thought collateral estoppel was. I didn't know there was a difference. No, there's a difference between collateral estoppel and equitable estoppel. If we called it issue preclusion, there wouldn't be such confusion. I took civil procedure years ago, and they just used to say race judicator, and it had two parts, and I can't even remember it that well. Thank you. Then I'm not certain. All I know is if I were an employer, I would want to know, I'm an employee, and now I was called a longshoreman, so now I bring my case. And the employer comes in and says, hey, this guy was called a longshoreman. That's the end of this matter. And you say, no, it isn't. Now I want to know the opposite happens. This person was called a seaman, and the employer comes in and says, hey, you understand the opposite? Yes. I want to know if it reaches exactly the same result. The same result. And let me answer the question about hardship. If the ALJ decides that the worker is a member of the crew and the district court decides that the person is not a member of the crew, the remedy is in 922, which calls for modification of awards. In that instance, the person can go back to the longshore proceeding and say, I was unfairly rejected of my longshore benefits. 
And I would like after to a year. Can you do it after a year? He can do it within a year, but he can apply. I didn't ask whether he can do it within a year. I asked if he could do it after a year. If within a year he files a notice with the Department of Labor. If he does not within a year, he cannot do it. it right? He all he has to do. Is that Justice, correct? If he hasn't filed something within a year. I would like to, Justice Scalia. The answer is all he has to do is file to seek a stay that would prolong the period of limitation. Must do that within the year. Yes. And if he has not filed that paper within the year. It's over. That's correct. But, okay. but Justice Scalia, if, if... It took a long time to get it, though, I must say. Justice Scalia, all, if the district court action is proceeding, all he has to do is to file a notice with the Labor Department to say, I have this action proceeding in district court. Please don't make my one-year um, period toll. That's all that he's got to do to keep open his modification of award. It's automatic? The district, the district director has... Uh, uh, has discretion, discretion to do it or not to do it. Is that right? That's correct. So it's not automatic. So that is not all he has to do. He has to do that and get somebody to graciously give him that extension. That's correct. But the but this court's decision. Let's be precise about about what his rights are here, and not the. His rights are to file for a modification of an award. That's clear, and that's also clear, Justice Scalia, that the uh, Congress did not intend for these ALJ proceedings to have a preclusive effect on subsequent Jones Act suits. Is the opposite hold true? Is it your view that if the Jones Act suit is decided first, it does have preclusive effects in the uh, Longshoreman Act case? It's, it's, yes, it is likely that that will be the case, but not always. And the reason is that you would be applying principles of judicial collateral estoppel rather than administrative collateral estoppel. In the, in the most likely scenario, the district court proceeding under the Jones Act will have preclusive effect because those principles of judicial Are collateral estoppel apply. Are you saying simply that, that administrative adjudications do not have as heavy an issue preclusive effect as judicial proceedings? That's correct. And that's Hornbook law. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. Well, what, what then invokes the intent of Congress? That's, I take it that's just a general principle of procedure. But you said you were arguing that Congress had a specific intent here. Right. There are two principal, two provisions that we would point to, the crediting provision, which makes clear that Congress anticipated these parallel proceedings would occur. Well, maybe, second, maybe Congress just anticipated the normal rules of civil procedure in, in which they're, they're on, under some, in, in one direction. There wouldn't be a preclusion. That would make sense of the congressional uh, credit scheme. I don't, respectfully, I, I, I think... Justice Souter, the way the credit provision is worded by saying liability imposed, if you accepted petitioner's position, there would be no point in having the crediting provision because the first tribunal to decide it would have a preclusive effect. There wouldn't be nothing. There would be nothing to credit. You're, you're saying 905e effective, or, or, or tell, explain why it isn't the case that that interpretation of 905e effectively repeals 905a. No, Justice Scalia. 903. E, the crediting provision, crediting provision right. is, is simply says 905A means exclusivity means no double recovery in but, the Jones Act suit. With respect to state tort remedies, but that's, exclusivity. That's not, what, that's not what A says. A says that this liability under the Harbor Workers Act is exclusive and, and you can't get any other recovery. As this court pointed out in footnote 3 of Gisoni, that means if the person is covered by the Longshore Act. It doesn't say who decides that. And our position is that the district court jury in the Jones Act suit would have the opportunity to decide whether the worker is a member of the crew. I'm still confused. I know you're at the end of the time, but I've had no opportunity to ask about it. To clarify, please, the point you tried to address previously for Justice Breyer. Apparently, you think that an employer could be equitably stopped for asserting contrary positions in one or the other uh, forum, fora. But the employee never would be equitably stopped and can take inconsistent positions. The question is, is one that, of, I mean, yes, can't that be answered yes or no? Yes, it can, and the answer is yes because of detrimental reliance. And then it's, doesn't that give me just the opposite answer that I, I mean, I was interested no. in the practicalities of this. Of course. I, I just wanted to be sure that there was parallel treatment here. And, and, and so is it that there is going to be real parallel treatment or that there isn't? 
I'm trying to think in general terms about the case. I, let me, maybe if, I, if I'm concrete, it would be helpful to the answer. If this were brought in a district court where the, the worker said, count one, I'm a Jones Act seaman, or count two, I'm a longshore worker, there wouldn't be any problem. The jury could decide what the status is. But this real-life case is the employee says in the uh, district court, I was a seaman when I was injured. That's that's correct. And the employer says, no, you weren't. You were, if anything, a longshoreman. And what has happened here, Justice O'Connor, is that instead of paying maintenance and cure, which uh, under the boatman's agreement for deckhands in this case, the petitioner here did not pay maintenance and cure, which would be the traditional seaman's remedy, and now under petitioner's theory would have the leverage to say, I'm not going to pay voluntary benefits under the Longshore Act either. And so the question of hardship really does arise for the injured worker. Well, but it is voluntary after all. The employer does not have to pay under Longshoreman Harbor Workers Act uh, predetermination benefits. May I answer the question, Mr. Chief Justice? Our position is that Congress did not intend for injured maritime workers to be left without any interim remedy while they pursued the status to which they are justly uh, should be awarded. Thank you, Mr. Frederick. The case is submitted. At 10 o'clock.